Well, this week, as we continue on in our journey through the book of Acts, we've come to a real uh, turning point with the conversion of Saul. And I'll tell you, this is a a dramatic episode. Saul's conversion is, uh, in a word, miraculous because of what he was saved from, what he was doing to God's church. Saul has got himself a good testimony. You know, not one of those boring testimonies when they're saved at two years old, baptized at four, now they're an elder in the church by 12. No, this is, this is a dramatic one. This is an eye-catching one. It's the type that you want to share at youth group because all the kids are going to say, wow, God, why did you save me so early? I could have had that story. That's because we often gauge our excitement towards a testimony based on how drastic the conversion was. But in reality, we're all saved from something and to someone. Our testimonies are all about the power of the gospel being put on display in our lives. And this morning, we get to see that powerful display in the life of Saul. Saul's testimony comes to us, this conversion, in Acts chapter 9. And if you can remember back just one chapter with me, you'll remember that this is the same Saul that approved of Stephen's martyrdom. He approved of Stephen's death, and he continued to ravage the church house by house. Saul is really the villain in our story. In fact, he's something of the the nemesis of the early church. Well, that is up until Acts 9, because as we're about to see, God is going to do something incredible in Saul's life. We saw the conversion of Simon and the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts 8, and now today, as if in a a three-part mini-series on salvation, we get to see the, the climax in Saul's own conversion. Jesus said the gospel would spread, and it's spreading as he said it would in Jerusalem first, then Judea, and now into Samaria, even to the likes of Saul of Tarsus. So let's start reading from verse 1. We'll begin at verse 1, and we'll read together through verse 25. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him, so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. 
And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and the kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell off his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized. And taking food, he was strengthened. Now for some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is this not the same man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him, but his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. We thank God for his word this morning. And in this chapter, we get a template for conversion, be it from an extreme example in Saul, but a template nonetheless of how God breaks new ground and softens hard hearts. After all, Saul's conversion here provides for us a radical template for conversion. And as I said, although Saul has an incredible and even miraculous conversion story, his story is much the same of all of those who call themselves Christ followers. His conversion is certainly unique, but it is a normative template of true and saving and genuine faith. And I would argue that it has three distinct parts. It has his life before Christ when he was opposed to God. It has his life when he came to Christ, when he encountered God. And then there's his life after Christ, how he was transformed into his new self. Those are the three parts of any testimony, but especially we can see that through Saul's here this morning. Conversion requires whole life transformation. The Puritan Joseph Elaine wrote, Conversion is no repairing of the old building, but it takes all down and erects a new structure. Conversion doesn't simply fix what's wrong with you. It fixes you. It changes you. That's the transformation that Saul here is experiencing, being transformed from one thing into an entirely new, different thing, from sinner to saint. Let's look more closely now at this story as we consider it a template for understanding true and saving faith. The first part is there's a heart that's opposed to Christ, a heart opposed to Christ. And I use that word opposed intentionally. In fact, in the first draft of this sermon, I had a heart without Christ, but I felt that was a bit too passive because it's not as though we're just without God. It's that we're against God, enemies with God. 
that's this heart that's opposed to Christ. And this snapshot of Saul's life before Christ comes to us in our text in those first two verses. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, that is Christians, men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So we've just heard the good news of Acts chapter 8, that the gospel is spreading. It's now reached into Samaria, praise God. But by way of total contrast, Luke, our author here, begins chapter 9 by saying, but Saul. As if to say, chapter 8 shows the the gospel and mission spread, but chapter 9 shows us a bit of Saul's mission and what he's doing, the counter-gospel mission. And this is the part that makes for a good testimony because Saul is a really bad guy. He's a guy that needs to get saved ASAP if the church is going to thrive and certainly survive. Saul was persecuting the church, and he was good at it. He was so dedicated to his calling that he was even able to figure out that after Stephen's martyrdom, Christians began to seek refuge 155 miles north in Damascus, in Syria. And he tracked these Christians down and began to go after them in Damascus. He went to the Jewish leaders, asking them to cooperate with his plan to go and pursue these heretics. And they did. He was given a mandate by the high priest to seek out and arrest these followers of Jesus, these people of the way. His intention was to arrest them, bind them, and then bring them back to Jerusalem for questioning, sentencing, and possible execution. That's Saul's life before Christ. Saul's life before Christ is a life against Christ, a life in opposition to Christ and his people, as we'll see in just a second. So I'm calling this template a radical template for conversion because it's already obvious that Saul, his story is a bit unique. It's, it's turned up to 11, if you will. But in it, we see a template for true conversion. Saul's conversion is a template, a pattern for all of us. And I'll tell you, his, his testimony certainly looks nothing like mine. Um, I was blessed to have been born into a multi-generational Christian family heritage, uh, and even to be blessed, best born on the mission field, no less. So Saul and I, Saul and you, probably look nothing alike. But therein lies the point. You know, maybe it's not that there are good and bad testimonies, but rather that all true and authentic testimonies must reveal the gracious display of God's salvation in our lives, freely given. I needed salvation just as much as Saul needed salvation, and Saul's salvation was just as much an act of grace as mine was. Not everyone gets this road to Damascus conversion. In fact, Saul's conversion here in Acts 9 is set up as a contrast to the Ethiopian eunuchs in Acts chapter 8 that we heard about last week, which providentially reveals two beautiful paradigms of salvation. On the one hand, we have the Ethiopian eunuch, who as if if a light switch with a dimmer was turned up as his eyes were open as he heard the preaching of the gospel. And then on this side, we have Saul's conversion, where it's just a a regular light switch that was just flicked on in an instant when he encountered Christ. There are two beautiful paradigms for salvation, which means 
that there's no good or bad testimonies, only God's story in our lives because we were dead in our trespasses and sin and we needed a savior. There was this young guy, he was 16 years old when he was kidnapped from his home and taken to the land of, as he knew them, the barbarians. He was taken there and he was kept a prisoner working for them for over six years. And during this time, his, his heart certainly hardened towards these people that he began to hate and despise who captured him. But after he was able to escape after these six years and made it home, God used that time not only to save him, but to then send him back as a missionary to those people. I'm, of course, speaking of St. Patrick, whose day we remember this coming Friday. 1,500 years ago, Patrick, like Saul, could have returned to Ireland to slay his captors. But instead, because God grabbed a hold of his life, he returned to give them Jesus. It was only possible because Patrick was saved. He needed saving. Saul here clearly needs saving. But friends, do you know that to be true of yourself? Do you know that you need saving? We've all fallen short of the glory of God. That's me. That's you. And we might not be as bad as Saul. I can say that for certain he was a bit of a serial killer. But just because we're not as bad as him doesn't mean we're not lost in the same darkness as him. Doesn't mean we're not opposed to God just like he was. We all need to encounter Christ. And that's what God does to Saul as he's on his way to persecute the early church in Damascus. I love cute babies. Sorry, I probably shouldn't have qualified that. I love all babies, but cute ones in particular. (laughs) Secondly, in this template for conversion that I'm putting forward this morning, we see a heart that's encountered by Christ. Saul's encountering of Christ was miraculous. And I use that word encounter intentionally as well because the word encounter carries with it this connotation of a brief or unexpected meeting. And Saul certainly wasn't expecting this. We saw just two weeks ago how the Ethiopian Ethiopian eunuch miraculously encountered Christ through his studies in the book of Isaiah. Uh, And then we saw Philip preaching, converting the Sumerians. Now today we see that Christ met Saul through theophany. That's your word for the day, theophany. That is a personal encounter with God manifested in a physical way. He met God, verse 3, and as he went on his way, he approached Damascus. See, God didn't even let him get to his destination before he grabbed a hold of him. He approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. We can only come to faith when we encounter Christ, period. It's there that we are changed. It's there that we are confronted with our sins and made aware of our separation from God, this opposition to God. Saul was confronted here in a truly powerful way, this theophany, where he beheld Jesus. And saving faith, by definition, requires one to behold God, to behold the majesty and the marvelous grace and wisdom of God 
That's required for salvation. That's required for you to be saved from something and to someone. So his conversion story begins here with this great light, a light from heaven. This is interesting because God used uh, an event that even the Jews like Saul would have been aware of. God's presence was often understood to be associated with light. If you can remember back to Isaiah 9, it's a verse we often quote at Christmas. It says, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. The symbolism here is quite obvious. Light always covers darkness. In fact, darkness is the absence of light. That's why when you're in a dark room and the light is turned on unexpectedly, we shield our eyes. Not just because of how bright the light is, but because we were so comfortable in the darkness that we were living in. But in an instant, it's removed. And that's how God encountered Saul. As this light's shining down on him, he hears this audible voice saying, Why are you persecuting me? Truly magnificently, Jesus is identifying himself as the persecuted one. Christ identifies himself with his church, with the body. In fact, this moment would define much of Paul's later understanding of the church and unity and the body of Christ when we read through books like Colossians, Galatians, and even Philippians. When he's confronted with Jesus, he replies by already knowing the one to whom has called him. He replies by saying, Lord. So there's no question whom this light is or who the voice belongs to. Saul knows it to be the Lord, the same Lord that he's out there persecuting. But in his darkness, he was blind. When the light of Christ came, Saul's eyes were instantly opened. I'm speaking specifically to his spiritual and eternal eyes, They were open, but incidentally, his physical eyes were shut. Verse 8 says, although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So for three days, Saul was blind. Just like Jonah was in the whale for three days, Christ was in the tomb for three days. For three days, Saul would be left alone blind. And if you can picture it with me, the folks in Damascus are there waiting for Saul to come with the sword. They know he's got this mandate from the high priest. That's verse 14. So they're waiting for him to come with the sword. But instead, he comes holding on to the arms of his men, stumbling into the city, humbled, defeated, and broken. C.S. Lewis gets it exactly right when he says, every conversion is the story of a blessed defeat. There can be no conversion unless the knee has bowed, because a heart that has seen the king bows before the king. And when Saul encountered Jesus, everything that he trusted in fell away, and he was left waiting and listening for the voice of God as he prayed for those three days. St. Augustine, who uh, wrote a fantastic uh, book called The Confessions, which is essentially an account of his own conversion in the fourth century, he said this great line, He said, when anyone knows that he is nothing in himself and has no help from himself, the weapons within himself are broken and the war is ended. Saul knew that his war was over. He had nowhere to go. He couldn't go back to Jerusalem. They knew who he was. He was this 
this Jewish leader on a mission. He couldn't go back now as a Christian. He couldn't go forward to Damascus because these people were expecting him to come with a sword. They weren't going to be welcoming him. So he had nowhere to go but just the voice of Jesus to follow. And isn't that always the best place to be in? If you're here this morning and you haven't bent your knee to Jesus, do you believe that the war can end in you this morning? That your fight can be over in Jesus' name? Saul knew that. And look with me at what happened next. Saul's conversion, as does ours, typically involved the working of another Christian, one whom he'd never met or ever known. God was preparing for Saul an encounter with Ananias. And let's not pass over Ananias' role in Saul's conversion. The Lord tells Ananias to go to the strait and find a man praying there. Verse 11. Now, Straight Street was the main road that ran east to west across Damascus. It was the busiest, it was the most crowded, the longest street in town. It was most likely where Saul was going to go to proclaim his mission for the Christians. And yet here he arrives, humbled, defeated, and broken. He's sitting there himself now, waiting for rescue. But God did not leave him alone in his darkness. Enter Ananias, this seemingly unimportant and unknown early Christian. He wasn't a leader in the church. He wasn't an apostle. A seemingly unknown Christian steps up. And upon hearing that, he's the one that's supposed to go to Saul. He gently reminds God of who Saul was, just in case God forgot. He said, excuse me, God, I'm going to go. I will. I love you. Um, but just one quick, one small thing you may have forgotten, that's the guy that wants to kill me. I don't know if you missed that detail. And that's interesting because more time in the text is devoted to God getting Ananias to Saul than there was in getting Saul converted. It's almost as if it was harder for God to convince a Christian to be used by him than to save a lost serial killer. Either way, God says, yes, you, Ananias, you go. Go to Saul. He is going to be my instrument, and you get to be the one that strings that instrument that I'm going to play so mightily. What a beautiful role that God gifted to Ananias, even though he didn't recognize it at first, but he did go. And if you were Ananias, perhaps you would have as well written Paul off. But God, being rich in mercy knew the end game. He used Ananias in the conversion story of Saul, and he continues to use us to tell our friends about Jesus, to tell our enemies about Jesus. What would the world look like if we allowed God to use us in such a way? Ananias wasn't an apostle, wasn't a leader in the church. It appears from the text Judas was more of the leader. But he was simply a faithful witness of the apostolic gospel, which was breaking new ground and softening hardened hearts. And I would ask the Lord to use me in such a way as well. Because before Saul became Paul and wrote half of the New Testament, who traveled over 10,000 miles on missionary journeys, planting numerous churches, before any of that happened, God asked a Christian to go to his enemy and call him brother. He used a seemingly unimportant Christian for this task. And as I look out this morning, I see such a potential. 
Not that I'm calling you all unimportant, but simply tasked with unlimited potential in Christ. And consider this, it was a seemingly unimportant man that was preaching in the pulpit on the day that C.H. Spurgeon wandered into the church in 1850. It was a big snowstorm that day. C.H. Spurgeon wasn't even going there. He was on his way elsewhere, but he got diverted down this alleyway and went into this church. The minister of the church got snowed in, and so this random guy came up to give the message. Spurgeon calls him a tailor or a shoemaker. And the tailor or this shoemaker talks about beholding Christ. And in that moment, Spurgeon is saved. Now, was that an accident? Or was it a faithful witness simply following God's call on their life? They had been placed in such a place for such a time as that. Let us be such a people, faithful despite the unknown, consistent despite life's inconsistencies, and ready to be used despite our limitations. It's true, God uses us in each other's stories. That's why Christianity is a team sport, not a solo race. It's more like a marriage in that each partner works to the betterment of the other. This past week, for example, earlier in the week when I was supposed to be writing this sermon, I was, I'll spare you the details, just violently ill, and my wife Erin took care of me. And now... I'm taking care of her. She just got her wisdom teeth out on Friday. And so I'm taking care of her. Well, not right now. I'll be home soon, honey. Uh, (laughs) But Christianity is this team sport that we're in together. Be thankful for the people that you're sitting around this morning because you could be someone's Ananias. I can't tell you how many times I have somebody come up to me after the service and say, I sat next to this new person. Make sure you welcome them, get to know them. I really think they're great. And then a couple weeks later, I get to sit down with them and begin the integration process, get them connected into the church. And I'll ask them why they stayed. You know, what brought them here? Why did they stay? And, you know, we talk about preaching. We talk about worship. We talk about our mission and the value of the church. Um, But more often than not, one of the first things they say for why they stayed is because they sat next to somebody who not only welcomed them, but made them want to know more about Jesus. So let's, let's encounter Christ together. And then the final part of this conversion template is seeing how Saul's life was changed. I like to say, if the fruit doesn't change, then the root didn't either. But here we can see what true and genuine faith looks like. That's the third thing, a heart that's transformed by Christ. Turn with me to verses 20 to 25, and we'll see just how drastically and immediately Saul's life was transformed and immediately he proclaimed Jesus. Pause there. That's, that's saving faith in action. Immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying that he is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is this not the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of all who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? See, they all, they all knew about his mission. But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus, by proving that Jesus was the Christ. And when many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. The people he was just working for are now wanting to kill him. That's transformation. But because their plot became known to Saul, they were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples, these new brothers in Christ that Saul has, 
Because he's been brought into the family of faith, his disciples took care of him. They took him by night. They let him down through an opening in the wall and lowering him in a basket. Immediately the light came on and Saul's life was transformed. The persecutor became the preacher. Saul tells everybody about Jesus and his new life. This new life that was marked by joy and a witness and love for the gospel. Just like the man, the lame man at the temple gate in Acts 3, everyone noticed this miracle because they all knew who this man, Saul, was. And what a transformation. The very people he went to kill now called him brother. That's the power of the gospel. That's the life-changing and life-altering transformational gospel we have in Christ Jesus. Saul proclaimed that Jesus was indeed the Son of God. And this was a total 180 from his former self because he was raised as a student of the Jewish rabbi Gamaliel who was a master of the Jewish oral law in the first century. He was a leader in the Sanhedrin. He preached the law. And here Saul is preaching grace. Saul's life after Christ juxtaposed his life before Christ reveals true and genuine saving faith. The faith that he experienced on the road to Damascus. And what a beautiful template of conversion that that is. Conversion is the call upon every Christian to know Christ and to make him known. Saul didn't simply take this newfound faith and keep it to himself. He began telling everyone. Church, make your conversion known. Especially those closest around you. They should know you're saved by grace. Respond. Respond today by your own conversion and living in a life, living your life in a way that the world would take notice of. I love this Spurgeon quote. He said, I believe that one reason why the church of God at this present moment has so little influence over the world is because the world has so much influence over the church. And he wrote that in the 1880s, but sure, true today, isn't it? Church, we are being prepared for such a time as this. Because even though Saul's conversion was monumental, it didn't end the persecution for the Christians. Did you know that Saul wasn't the only persecutor of the early church? In fact, Saul's mission would soon become that of the entire Roman Empire. First came Nero, 64, when he blamed the Christians for the great fire in Rome. Then came Trajan, then Decius, then the Diocletian persecution. The Christians would spend the next 400 years in persecution. 400. Does that remind you of a different group of God's people that spent 400 years in Egypt? Christians would have to wait until the rise of the Emperor Constantine in the 4th century before they experienced any relief. Interestingly, at the start of the 4th century, Christianity was illegal. But by the end of the 4th century, Christianity was the only legal religion in the entire Roman Empire. But it took time. It took perseverance. God plays the long game. And we should too. Throughout our journeys of faith, God may just see fit to use us in mighty ways. So don't be defeated. If you don't have Saul's conversion experience, that's not the point of this story. That's not why it's included here. Luke included it in Acts to show that our God is merciful and completely in control of even the farthest gone individual. 
If you're here and you're already saved, then this conversion doesn't necessarily encourage you because you didn't have that maybe light switch magic moment, that theophany. In fact, if I were to ask how many people had Saul's conversion experience versus the Ethiopian eunuch eunuch who had the scriptures explained and the dimmer, the lights came on, um, I imagine the majority would say they had the Ethiopian eunuch's conversion instead. It's that idea of the light switch versus the dimmer slowly coming on. So saved people don't necessarily love Saul's conversion in that it's, it's foreign to them. It's a really cool point in the history of the church. But is it really about his conversion? I would say that you should be encouraged, though, by Saul's conversion for a number of reasons. The first people that should be encouraged by this conversion this morning are parents. Because parents, if you have a wayward or rebel child that you've been presenting the gospel to for years, then be encouraged because God can still flip that switch. Maybe your child won't have a conversion like the Ethiopian eunuch. Maybe they'll be saved like Saul. Or if you've been praying for a lost friend for years, be encouraged because they are not beyond God's grasp. Continue praying for them. George Muller, who was the uh, German Christian who planted a number of orphanages in the 1840s and 50s, he had a friend that he prayed for every day for 60 years. And that friend finally came to Christ. The light switch was finally turned on in his life 60 years later at George's funeral. So keep praying, keep asking God to work in and through you and be encouraged that even though this isn't your story, it may be for a loved one. But if you're here and you aren't saved, then Saul's conversion changes everything. Because it means that you're not too far gone for God. If Saul wasn't, then you certainly aren't. You are within his reach this morning because he loves He cares for you. He knows you by name. It's not an accident that you came in this morning to hear a sermon about Saul, a truly lost soul, because you are him. You've been fighting with God for years. The dimmer switch has never been turning on for you, but the light switch did this morning. Each Sunday now, we've been having probably 15 to 20 new people Uh, in attendance with us. So I can certainly say I don't know everybody in this room, but I do know that God is waiting for you to respond to the free gift of grace that he is offering you this morning. Call on him as your Lord, as your Savior today. There's only one way to God, right? That's through the person and work of Jesus. There's only one way to God, but there are many ways to Jesus. We all have different stories, Whether it's a light switch, whether it's a dimmer, come to Jesus. In his arms you'll find peace, you'll find rest, you'll find eternal hope. So by way of conclusion this morning, given that our texts over the past couple weeks have ended with both the Ethiopian eunuch and Saul getting baptized, we felt as a leadership team that we should provide that opportunity for anybody that needs it right now. In fact, we have a couple guys that have already stepped forward from last week that want to be baptized. And we're going to keep our baptism service in Easter, for sure. Um, But seeing that that's a month away, and we're responding to this call that God is putting before us, we want to have baptisms this morning. 
Because as soon as Saul regained his sight, the text says that he, was, he rose and he was baptized. He regained his sight and then he rose and he was baptized. So if you've been given that new sight this morning in the light of Christ, then we filled the tank, rise and be baptized. You know, I have my baptism shirt on under my dress shirt. It's quite uncomfortable, actually. But that's so that we can do this, so that we can have baptisms. I'm going to invite the worship team to come up now. And we're going to have a bit of time of reflection so that you can do business with God. As you're prompted by the Holy Spirit to be baptized this morning, then just meet me over at that side door. I'll be standing right there, and I'm going to meet with you and pray with you, and then we're going to have baptisms. If you've already been baptized, if you're saved, then take this time now to pray for those that are raging that war and maybe don't know that the war is over in Jesus' name. When you get to the hallway, um, we're going to meet with you and an elder, and we're going to ask you two questions. We're going to ask you, have you received the word that was spoken to you today? And we're going to ask, do you profess faith now in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? If you can answer yes to both of those questions, then you need to be baptized today. You need to be brought into the family of faith this morning, just as Saul was. So let's leave some time for that quiet reflection. And as you're reflecting and prompted by the Spirit, do come forward. We'll have folks, like I mentioned, that are going to come forward right now as we begin our baptisms.